Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Prayer is spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, there is a passage known to almost all of us called the armor passage because Paul is exhorting the Ephesian believers in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, the three greatest words any Baptist preacher ever uttered. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle, there is a word picture there, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, this Sion, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Every battle on earth has a corresponding battle in heaven, in the spirit world. Spiritual warfare is Satan attacking God through us. You are not the ultimate objective, but God is the ultimate objective. If Satan can just pull him from his purpose and his will and his throne, and he is desperately trying, and that spiritual warfare affects you and me. Then Paul gives all of the responsibilities of the armor and concludes in verse 18 with one of the keys, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And he concludes all of his passage on the spiritual armor by saying, in the end, what you and I must do is be in prayer, be in prayer always with all kinds of perseverance, don't give up, and supplication. In Luke 18, in Jesus' great parable on the unjust judge, he said, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find what on the earth? He's not looking for your treasure. He's not looking for your numbers. He's not looking for your reputation. He's looking for your what? Faith. Will he find faith on the earth? Will you have the faith to stay in warfare, in prayer, with endurance, with perseverance, and with supplication? So it ties, doesn't it, to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now go back to look at that passage one more time because I keep alluding to this in this brief series. Because remember what Paul has told us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3, and 4. Though we war or we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or material, 
basically the weapons of the warfare this church does, those weapons are not padded pews and air conditioning and the right location. The weapons of warfare are spiritual weapons. What are they? They are whatever weapons, mighty in God, that pull down strongholds, mental fortresses, Satan working in the spirit world, Satan working to keep us from accomplishing in heart, mind, and soul what God wants us to do. And never is that truer than in the matter of prayer as spiritual warfare. He builds strongholds in us. Now, what is a stronghold? It is three things. Watch this carefully. It can be any kind of thing that meets these three conditions. And in prayer, there are some specific ones. First, a stronghold is an idea in the mind that that appears true. It is either true or appears true. It appears to be true. Secondly, it appears true repeatedly. Repetition is involved. It's something I see over and over and over and over again. I might see someone who is very harsh. He's harsh once. He's harsh twice. He's harsh three times. He's harsh four times. Now the devil creates the idea in my mind that is a very harsh person. And suddenly I see that one in a situation with all kinds of tenderness and it attacks my stronghold. It gets to the, I build up this idea about this person. And I say, well, he could never do this or this or this. I'll never forget the first time I ever saw a retired, tough-talking police captain working in the nursery, rocking a little baby. His name was what? Do you know? C.T. Richardson. Now, that tough talk of that police captain is all exterior. He thinks he's tough, but he's a, he's a teddy bear inside. Amen? Well, I have three people that agree. I know him pretty well. And I thought, suddenly, wait a minute, that's not the image. And have you ever had somebody that Satan built up a stronghold in your mind about and you just rejected that person? That's a stronghold. It appears true. It appears true repeatedly. Three, until you think it is reality. I've seen it happen when some little boy wanted to date your daughter. And that daughter you thought was far above the cut of that young man. And you went to work on your daughter. Some of you have had this happen to you. Your father-in-law did this before you were married. Amen? How many of you? Well, no. And uh, you went to work on that daughter of yours. I just, <laughs> I thought of several examples here. And you went, to the, uh, you went to work on that daughter. And you started building a stronghold in that daughter's mind. Is he going to be able to support you in the manner to which you've been accustomed? He'll never take care of you like I've taken care of you. He, I've done this myself. Listen, I, I worked hard on two false, uh, uh, on two boys in my daughter's lives in which they thought they were in love. And I had to go to work and build a stronghold to save my daughters. Amen. How many of you have ever done? You wait. Rick, you laugh, but you wait. One of those days, some boy is not going to be good enough for Emily and not going to be good enough for Casey. But I built a stronghold. Is he going to be able to do this? Now, that's exactly what Satan does with us in prayer. That is exactly what he does with us. He builds a stronghold, and there are five of them. 
five strongholds he builds against God to keep us from warring with Satan through prayer. The first stronghold is God's sovereignty. We don't understand why God does what God does. But God is sovereign. And Satan takes the sovereignty of God, which appears to be capricious. Why is God doing that? And he builds that as a stronghold to keep us from battling with him in prayer, using the spiritual weapon of prayer. It is a very, very common stronghold. The powers of heaven against the powers of Satan. I love what Zig Ziglar said. He said he reads the Bible. He said, I read the Bible and the newspaper every day so that I can know what both sides are doing. I like that. I read the Bible and the newspaper every day so I can know what both sides are doing. And if Satan can build a stronghold by making God's sovereignty appear to be our enemy and making us think it over and over again until it's a reality, somehow God is so capricious in the decisions he makes. And I don't understand him, so I'll just leave him alone. I'll give thanks for my meals. I'll ask him to bless me when I go to sleep at night, but I'm not going to do spiritual battle because I don't understand the sovereignty of God. And he pulls us back. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, there is this amazing passage as Daniel interprets the dream of his king. God reveals the dream. Daniel answered and said in verse 20, see verse 19, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven and he answered and said, now watch what Daniel says about God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times. This is a remarkable statement. And he changes the seasons. He removes kings and presidents and governors and raises up kings and presidents and governors. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Daniel says, you and I have no business questioning the sovereignty of God. I don't understand. I've eaten the same diet Chuck Peters has all his life, and I don't have any history of heart problems, and I have a heart attack, and Chuck doesn't. And I've watched you eat. <laughs> and you deserve one, but you, God didn't give you one. <laughs> have you ever, nobody here has ever asked a question like that? And gradually Satan builds a stronghold in our minds about the sovereignty of God and we just give up in spiritual warfare. There's no use. I don't understand God, so I just quit. The sovereignty of God. Oh, there's a great passage while you're here in Daniel chapter 4. Do you remember in verse 35 when Nebuchadnezzar had been 
had lost his mind and was out in the field and his fingernails looked like a cow's hooves and his hair had grown way down long and he was out in the field and then he came to his senses and he says in verses 34 and 35, God's dominion. He said, I bless the most high, praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. I don't understand the army of heaven. I don't understand why God does what he does in my life. But he does according to his will. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Satan, because God is so much bigger than we are, Satan takes the sovereignty of God and turns that into a stronghold to defeat us, to make us hide against getting involved in the intense spiritual warfare called prayer. God is no indulgent father who simply indulges his children with whatever they want without regard to moral and spiritual considerations. He doesn't just answer prayer according to your will. He answers according to his will. And that is why sometimes Satan is able to build a stronghold in us that God is so big he doesn't understand. He's sovereign, but his sovereignty has nothing to do with me. He treats us as responsible, moral beings, not robots. He treats us as free will agents, as children, not mechanical machines. His sovereignty never clashes with his paternity. But because we are his children, his sovereignty always serves his paternity. He is our father and his sovereign power serves the fact that we are his children. Isaiah has a great line. You remember the picture, turn over to Isaiah chapter, oh, I believe it's chapter 64, but you remember in Jeremiah when Jeremiah uses the picture of the potter's wheel? And he says, shall the, pot, shall the lump say to the potter, why have you made me thus and thus? And it seems so arbitrary that we say, yeah, I've often asked that. Why did the potter make me like this? But in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, he answers Jeremiah's question. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter, and we and all we are, all we are the work of your hand. That answers the question. God's sovereignty at the potter's wheel serves his paternity. His great power is directed towards taking care of me when I cannot take care of myself as his child. It's a tremendous thought. But God sometimes turns his sovereignty into a stronghold against God. Secondly, 
Sometimes God, not, uh, Satan uses not only God's sovereignty, but he uses God's slowness. God's slowness. Oh, God, I've been praying for 13 years for a wife. And you gave me the wrong one three times. Now, I want one more chance. <laughs> no, no. Uh, God, I've been praying for something and it's been forever. Why are you so slow in answering? Anybody here ever asked that question? And God's apparent slowness in answering appears to be that God doesn't answer or he doesn't care or he doesn't respond. And Satan, when it happens over and over again, Satan then uses that to build a fortress in our minds to make us hide against, well, I prayed and prayed and it doesn't do any good, so I just quit praying. And we get out of the spiritual warfare because Satan has turned the truth of God into a stronghold that has to be torn down. If you're going to be involved in spiritual victory, you're going to have to tear that down. George Mueller prayed for 60 years for two friends. Just several days before he died, one was saved, and several days after he died, another one was saved. When I read that in Mueller's biography, I began to think of Hebrews 11 when the Bible says, oh yeah, Abraham never saw all the promises that God gave him. Few of us do. There's some things that you, this generation in Calvary, are laying groundwork for that I'll never see. And Carolyn, you will never see. Somebody else will benefit from those. Somebody else. Probably, just thought I'd casually say this, probably there's somebody out there who's left us $5 million in their will. And you're praying you'll live forever. And you may... <laughs> And in 21 years, you're going to die and leave $5 million. And I'll never know it except in glory if Jesus tarries. But it'll come. It'll come, but I will never see it and you will never see it. Wouldn't that be something? God's slowness. Sometimes our impatience with God comes out of an undisciplined spirit on our part. And he holds up just to make us Wait, not to tease us, but to train us. Sometimes our impatience comes out of imperfect knowledge. We see things this way, but God sees the large picture. Sometimes our impatience comes out of an inadequate understanding of what God is doing in somebody else's life, and he sees that, but we don't. And we get anxious with God. Where are you, God? You're too slow. Why don't you answer? Maybe God's unwilling. Maybe God's unable. Listen, folks. God is not unwilling to answer your prayer. He's just unwilling to serve you at your purpose level. He's going to do what is his will. And God is not unable. It's a matter of time. Romans chapter 4. Turn to that for a moment. There's a great passage in here in the story of uh, Abraham in Romans chapter 4. And poor old Abraham, not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. God had promised to give him a seed. He said, Lord, I'm dead. I died inside. I mean, what happened since he was about 100 years old? Lord, how are you going to give me seed? And Lord, my wife is dead. She died inside. She's, she's already lost her capacity to reproduce. I don't guess they had estrogen pills in those days, but anyway, she didn't, she's already gone, Lord. My wife is over the hill. I won't ask for a vote on that one. 
But that's what Abraham said. And you haven't produced your seed. But you know what verse 20 says? He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised he was able to perform. And that's what was accounted to him for righteousness. The truth is, Sarah got upset with God's slowness and thought she'd help God out. And she had a little handmaiden who worked for her called Hagar and said, why don't you go in? And sleep with Abraham. And let's see if we can help God. Did you ever try to help God out? Poor old God. He needs you so bad. You will make a mess of things when you try to help God out. So he was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever God... But where are you, God? And God's slowness often in our lives becomes a fortress against faith. A fortress against prayer. We hide behind it. It's, it's true God works in his own time. But when we, when we see that over and over again, pretty soon we begin to wonder, well, does he ever work at all? There is a third fortress that Satan uses to keep us from prayer and spiritual warfare. It is God's silence. God's silence. The psalmist cries out, where are you, God? I haven't heard from you. I haven't heard from you, God's silence. Lord, why don't you speak? Isaiah cried out the same thing. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 45 in the Old Testament. Notice I love Isaiah because he is so honest and he capsulizes so much of what other writers have also said. He kind of sums it up for David and for many other writers, when in Isaiah chapter 45, in one of his great songs, the la in verse 14, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, they shall be yours. He's prophesying, they shall walk behind you, they shall come over in chains, they shall bow down to you, they will make supplication to you. Surely God is in you, and there is no other, there is no other God. Now watch verse 15. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Even when God hides himself, he is still God. There are times in a counseling situation when somebody poses a question to me, and I've found if I don't have an answer, the best thing is to shut up. Amen? If you don't have anything to say, what's good advice, class? Don't say it. Let a man ponder. Some of you wives, you get on a question streak with your husbands. I want an answer now. I want an answer now. Give the guy time to think. Back away. God doesn't always answer when we want him to. He doesn't always say something just to be saying something. If you want people to listen to what you have to say, make sure you got something to say before you say it. You know, Baptists are strange people. If you don't tell them the truth, they'll make it up. And then they'll spread it. <laughs> it happens all the time. And the silence of God has posed a problem for many Christians. And Satan takes God's silence and says, see there? He doesn't care for you, John. He doesn't even speak back to you when you pray. 
See, there, he doesn't care for you, Rick. He doesn't even talk back to you when you pray. And he builds a fortress in our minds. The early Christians assumed Jesus was coming in their generation. And they thought it so strongly, they would give a greeting to each other, and they would say, Maranatha, the Lord is coming. And what would people answer back? What would they say? Say it, choir. Same thing. Maranatha, the Lord is coming. And after they went through several generations of that, there were some people who got tired. They said, God is, is silent. He doesn't say anything. He's not coming. And Peter's answer to those in that generation was, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why has God remained silent on any additional information on the coming of Christ? To give people a chance to repent. That's why. That's easy. Where is God's silence? I love John the Baptist. He is so honest. He is like Peter, he is like me, and he is like some people in this choir. He sometimes said exactly what he thought, and in doing so, put both feet in his mouth. But he got to the quick. He's in prison. He's got all kinds of opposition, and Jesus hasn't even visited, hasn't called him on the phone, hasn't given him his 800 number, and he sends his disciples out to Jesus and say, why are you silent? Come and do something. I mean, after all, I'm the one who announced you. This is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. After all, I'm the one who said, I, I am not he, but I there's one coming after me who's greater than I am. And here I am in jail, and you don't do anything. Don't you care? Don't, where are you, Jesus? Why are you silent? And Jesus sent back a message to him. Do you recall that? It's a great story. In fact, turn over to Matthew 11, and I'll show you one thing about that passage. As I read it this week, that just struck me in Matthew chapter 11. He, he sent them all back. Well, he, you remember he gave them a... Verse 2 and 3 is where he asked the question, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And he sent back a great statement. Go and tell John, verse 4, the things which you hear and see. And then he listed all the things he was doing. But I love verse 6. Draw, draw a box around verse 6. Blessed is he who is not offended with me. Blessed is me who takes the things that I do and is not offended by my silence. And then he gives a great prophetic song about John, beginning in verse 7. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? A man clothed in soft garments? What did you expect? You saw a prophet. Yeah, you saw more than a prophet. This is he of whom Isaiah wrote. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Verse 11. Among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Once you get into the church, whoever's the least in the church is greater than John the Baptist. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent taken by force and that won't cease just because I came. Why are you silent, God? And Jesus answers back, blessed is he who is not offended by me. There's a fourth stronghold that Satan builds against prayer and that's God's security. God's security. I think this is one of the greatest insights I ever got in parenting. 
honestly, it changed my whole approach to parenting, is that God is so secure in who he is that he is content even to be misunderstood by his children. Now you ponder what I just said. God is so secure in who he is that he is content to be misunderstood by his children. We parents, I think we got, we may have gone too far with this self-esteem thing. We've gone so far building up everybody's self-esteem that we don't have any standards for our children anymore. Everything is, that's wonderful. Kid, you can't do any wrong. I want to tell you, self-esteem comes when children produce and are productive. Self-esteem comes when you help a child do what God has called him to do and to be what God has called him to be. There is more to self-esteem than just telling a kid he's wonderful. Someday, somebody's going to clobber him over the head and he's going to get a headache and he's going to say, if I'm so wonderful, why do I get a headache? But God is secure as our parent, spiritual parent, that he is content even when we misunderstand. God doesn't run around the world explaining why he does what he does. God doesn't. There's no place in the Bible where God ever justifies or ever gives a full and adequate explanation as to why he does what he does. He is so content that his children look at him and say, I hate you. He just smiles and laughs. Some of us are so insecure, our children go through that rebellious stage and they look at us and say, I hate your guts. And you go, give me a valium. They don't mean what they say. If you're so insecure that you've got to run to every whim of your child, I promise you, you will destroy respect for, for you and self-esteem in them. And God is so secure in who he is that he doesn't feel duty-bound to run around and explain to you why he does what he does just because you ask him a question. Sometimes he says, stick it in your ear and wait. Well, he doesn't say it exactly like that, but, but that's what he's saying. It's a fortress against God, God's security. I'll show you a couple of exam examples of that. John chapter 11, verse 3. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, John chapter 11, verse 3. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. That's a guilt trip. You know that. The one you love so much is sick. You better come right now. Come quickly. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus always saw the larger picture of the sovereign purposes of God to get glory for himself. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's interesting John gives us that little phrase. And then verse 6, he gives us a very puzzling phrase. He says, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That's one of the funniest things in the Bible. If Jesus had been pastor of a Baptist church, he'd have been fired for doing this. Did you know that? Somebody would complain, I called and it was four and a half hours before they came to see me. Can you say, imagine Mary and Martha facing Jesus in heaven? Jesus, I called for you and you were two days. Where were you? What were you doing? Answer to me. Jesus says, none of your business. I didn't write the text. Don't look at me that way. Jesus stayed two days. Why could he do that? He was going to accomplish the larger purpose of God. 
And he was so content that it didn't make any difference that he was misunderstood temporarily. God is so strong and so powerful, he doesn't owe any of us an explanation. But Satan uses that to build a fortress when it happens over and over and over and over and over again. Satan says, see there, that's reality. That's the way God is. And we say, oh, if God's that way, I'm not going to pray anymore. I'm going to quit having my quiet time. It's not necessary for me to go to church. I'll go once a month. I'll get my five bucks once a month. And, and, and now Satan has created a fortress. And you just checked out of the battle. You went AWOL in spiritual warfare right there. That's it. One of the nice, you know, there's some nice things about growing old. I, you know, the other side, I could give you the other side, but let me tell you some nice things about when you grow older, you do get more secure, and there are just a whole lot of things that you say, well, that's just tough. I'll do the best I can, and if you understand, fine, and if you don't, that's fine too. I've done everything I can do. And you hang it around your neck and carry it till you understand. And the older you get and the more mature you get in the Lord, the more you understand God is very secure in who he is and in what he's doing. And he knows exactly where he's going. And, and you see that all throughout. You know, in, in, again, we see that in, in the gospel of, uh, of uh, Mark. It's fantastic when, when uh, uh, you, you see that. Uh, it's just, I don't have time to go into it, but... God's secure, and his security can be misunderstood, and that becomes a fortress of Satan. Time is always God's ally. Time is always on God's side. The future is always on God's team. I must get on with the fifth and last. The fifth thing is God's strength. Sometimes that's a fortress. It's God's strength. God's strength, Malachi chapter 3, the last book in the Old Testament, there's a great statement about God here, and that is in chapter 3. In verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I do not change, and that is the reason you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. My power, my stability, my changelessness, is the very reason why you are not consumed immediately in judgment. I have watched some huge, big men restrain themselves. It is a beautiful picture. Wake fans don't kill me, but Friday evening, the coach at Clemson had called several weeks ago and asked if I would come over and do a chapel service for the Clemson football team. I felt like a grasshopper standing among this, <laughs> the giant. I mean, hunks, hulks, super hulks, whole room full of them, all sitting in Clemson T-shirts showing every bulge. I, you know, I, I wanted to put on a raincoat around me and say, don't look at anything. And I had 45 minutes just to sit and talk to them about the Lord. And uh, it, it's I, I told them the story that I heard over at the 
Peter Lowe seminar about Jeff Bostick, who was center for the Redskins. It's the story Joe Gibbs told. And Gibbs said that they were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. They were ahead by two points. They're on the 18th yard line. The 18 yard line is third and 12. Third and 12, 18 yard line. And he said the center on this play, he said there was a stiff wind coming to us with the cards. I didn't want to have to punt, give them the ball at midfield, and they could kick 60-yard field goal with the wind. So he said Bostic, the center for the Redskins, hit his man. And then he hit the middle linebacker, and he was able to control him and keep him from moving anywhere. And the middle linebacker got so frustrated because his strength was restrained that he reached back his hand and hit Bostic with all he had. Bostic was on his knees. Now, if that had been you or if that had been me, I probably would have immediately, what would we have done? I'd have jumped up, stuck my nose in his face, said, you're not going to do that to me. Bostic stayed on his knees, looked around to find the closest ref he could. And when he saw him, he caught his eye and just stayed on his knees and threw up his hands like that. Said, look, did you see that? And out comes a flag, a 15-yard penalty. And he said, he saved the game and the day because he restrained his strength. Well, who knows what God wants to do? Hebrews 13, 8 says, God is the same yesterday. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Mark chapter 4 in the New Testament, when, when Jesus uh, performed a miracle of, for the uh, disciples of, of stealing the wind, he was in the stern, verse 38, asleep on a pillow. They awoke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? See, that's the charge. Satan builds up the stronghold. God's so strong, he doesn't care. Question is, is God strong and compassionate? Does he care? Carest thou not that we perish? Verse 39, he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And they said, he said, Why are you so afraid? How is it you have no faith? And you would have thought they would have been rejoicing and happy, and the Bible says they were scared to death. His power frightened them. They feared exceedingly. Chapter 5, when he'd sent the, the uh, demons into the herd of swine, do you remember what happened? They came to Jesus, the crowd did, all the people saw the one who had been demon-possessed, had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 17 says, and they began to plead with him to get out of there, leave the region. They were afraid of his strength. And Satan often does that. That's another fortress he builds in our minds. God really doesn't care. He's so strong. Why should he care about me? Can I just wrap this up by giving you the conclusion to this? I want you to be able to fight the fortresses so that you can battle with prayer. But the real secret now, positively, to prayer or spiritual warfare is the following thing. Practice your spiritual authority. And there are five things I'm just going to give them to you and comment. And you can write them down. Think about them. Number one, accept your position in Christ. Ephesians 1, 2 says, I am seated, as a Christian, I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ. I'm already as good as there. That's my legal position. 
I have authority over Satan because I am seated with Christ in the heavenly. Secondly, assume your identity. Assume your identity. You are a child of God. Make the most of that and don't hide it. Luke 17, after Jesus had sent the 70 out, they came back and they said, boy, it's amazing. You won't believe what's happened to us. <laughs> they said, well, all these things have happened. And they, they listened to us, all the things that we did in your name, in your name. Third, acknowledge your authority. Because you are in Christ, acknowledge your authority. Luke chapter 10, there's a tremendous um, account also in which you remember when they came back, they said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And I saw Satan fall, Jesus said, like lightning from heaven. See, Satan, Jesus is trying to say, this is the way you defeat Satan. I saw Satan fall. This is a word picture. It's a prophecy. I give you authority. And then he lists all the things that the subject, the spirits are subject to you. But if that's great, that's wonderful. Use your authority. But the most important thing is that your names are written in heaven. And then he went on to say, I praise you, Father. I praise you. Fourth, assure purity. How can you exercise spiritual authority in prayer? if you're grieving the Holy Spirit. We've sung about the Holy Spirit this morning. Ephesians 4.30 says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Is there anything in your life, anything which grieves the Holy Spirit and offends Him? And finally, apply your authority to the enemy. Apply your authority. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus tells him, first, bind up Satan. Now, I don't think you've heard me talk about this before. I don't think we go around buying Satan. You know, the flowers don't show up on time. I bind Satan in that forest. I don't think Satan's behind everything. But what I do believe is that there are quiet times of prayer where we claim the promises of God and there are some intense times of struggle. When you are reclaiming territory that Satan has already claimed, you must bind Satan. And, and when Jesus uses that illustration in Matthew 12 about, about uh, saying, you know, that a kingdom is not divided against itself, and then he says, you must first bind, if you're going to keep a strong man down, you must first go in and bind the strong man. If there's an area of your life that Satan has claimed through practice or an area of your, of your life that Satan has taken over, it, it is true. Jesus said you must first bind Satan. But it's God who does the binding. You use the authority of Christ and the blood of the Lamb. But prayer is spiritual warfare. First, we have to overcome the spiritual fortresses and strongholds that Satan builds in our lives. John Ashcroft is a senator from Missouri. When he was sworn in after he won the election, he's an outstanding Christian, by the way. When he was sworn in after the election, he brought his family to the White House for the swearing-in ceremony. And while they were waiting for his turn to be sworn in, his family was waiting in a room and his old father was sitting in a chair. And uh, when it came time to pray, he saw his father struggling to get up out of that chair. You know, when arthritis hits you, you get in one of those deep chairs. You get your, your behind below your knee hind and you're in a behind situation. It's hard to get up and out of there. Amen. How many of you are there? 
and your bottom gets below your knees, you're like that in one of those soft chairs, you're in serious trouble. You need help. Well, anyway, his, his old daddy was struggling to get out of the chair. And John Ashcroft reached down to grab him to help him get up. He said, Dad, you don't have to get up out of this chair to stand, to pray. And this is what his, his old daddy said to him. He said, son, I'm not struggling to stand up. I'm struggling to get on my knees. I went on my knees. And that's where the church is right now. I think a whole lot of us are struggling to stand. Take your stand. Get up there and do something. In spiritual warfare, our task is to overcome the strongholds of Satan and get on our knees. A whole lot of things, more things are done through prayer than through money or through personal power or personal effort. And besides, what you do will never be as successful as when you spend as much time praying about it as you do doing it. Amen and amen.